0: We were in Genesis chapter one, and we were looking at the creation of people. And then this Sunday is uh, like an expanded view of that, and about what he, uh, what God intends for us, and uh, his very special creatures called human beings. Right? These very complicated, quirky things called humans. Right? That we are. And so today, we're going to talk about uh, more easy subjects. If you were here last Sunday, um, you know we talked about the easy stuff then, and we're going to talk about it again today. So we're going to look at kind of two chunks. We're going to look at rest and worship today. And then we're also going to look at sex. And we're going to look a little more at gender. And we're going to look at marriage um, because that's what the Bible talks about. And so we're not going to shy away from those things because they're important for us to talk about, right? So Genesis is where it all began. And we get this idea of what God's intent was for us and our sexuality and rest. And there's big ideas here in chapter two of Genesis. But Before we get too much further into that, I do want us to remember our driving question for the first three chapters of Genesis is what is God revealing about himself? What is he telling us about himself in this creation account? So part one, we're going to be doing uh, to finishing up in in a couple weeks and then we're going to be doing Googling God next. Right, Sarah? Is it Googling God? Okay, I plan these series out, and sometimes I forget what are they in, but uh, it's like the most uh, Googled questions about God um, from last year, and so we're going to kind of tackle those, but in this first section, we're going to be answering this question and trying to wrestle with this, and to do that, I've been trying to remind us each week that the creation account isn't about creation. It's about the creator, right? It's not so much a question as what, as it is a question of who, right? There, there's awesome things to be learned about creation, because if we understand what God is saying about himself and what he's saying about creation, it's like, oh man, the awe, the wonder, the appreciation, like, have you ever been on a hike and just been like, man, this is like perfect, like this is just beautiful. Like out the, I was out the other day on a hike and it was like this like this so beautiful. It was so like the like the there's still the mist on the earth and the sun was kind of just fighting its way through and I'm like man lord this is good stuff. And when I drive into uh, work in the mornings I'm I'm an early person. And so I get to see you the way I come. Uh, the whole valley will do that. And it's like filled up with this mist and the sun's kind of starting to fight its way through and it's turning everything pink. And it's just like for me, again, like the, the creator, it's like an opportunity to say every morning, Lord, Lord thank you, Lord, for for all of this, because it's about the creator. Right. It should point us to him. And in Genesis chapter two, we're again, we're going to get this picture that's a little bit blown out. It's like if you've ever looked at a map right? And you've got uh, the map. Now, most of us don't look at maps anymore, but you remember back in the day, I guess, when we had them, and you would have the map, but then it would have this like blown out section, like especially for a city. It would like enlarge the city out, right? That's kind of what Genesis chapter 2 is. So Genesis 1, 26, 27, about people. Chapter 2, a blown up version of that. It's kind of zooming in on that story, and it's going to take some of these themes that we've already seen and expand on them. So that means the Imago Dei is going to continue over. The image of God very much is going to be expanded on in here in chapter 2. And then also the idea that we, uh, each one of us, should see this as something that is very intentional. right? So the every day of creation, God is saying, I'm doing this intentionally. I'm doing this intentionally. I'm fitting things together in the universe just so. And then that idea is going to get carried on today as well, especially, because we're going to look at the very final day of creation first because that's how chapter 2 starts, and then a blown-up picture of Adam and Eve. And so I love what is discussed today, so I hope it's a blessing to you as well. So let's jump into Genesis chapter 2 and look at this whole rest idea. So, very unique day here. So Genesis 2 verse 1 says, So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. Chapter 2, verse 1, so that's actually chapter 2, not verse 2, but verse 1 starts here, and it completes what Genesis 1, chapter 1 began, right? Because Genesis is about the Creator. In the beginning, what? God. And what's the Hebrew word behind God? Elohim, right? Elohim is like a title, right? So in the beginning, Elohim, and He created, He did, He did all these things. And so chapter 2 is going to bring all that to completion. Now it says on the seventh day... God had completed, and he's talking about his creative work, not his sustaining work, just his, his creative work. He completed his work that he had done, and he rested, or he what? Shabbat, right? Sabbath. He took a Sabbath. And on the seventh day, he did that from all his work that he had done. Verse 3. And this is what makes this day unique. On this day God blessed the seventh day, so he blesses a day, which he doesn't do any other time, and declared declared it holy, which he didn't do anything else. For on it, it's the reason is it's stated he rested. He took a Sabbath from all his work of creation. So what's cool about this day? We read Matthew this morning, right? We we looked at what Jesus is saying in eleven twenty-eight through thirty, and he says, Come to all come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, right? So why is he able to say that? Well, if you'll notice, Genesis 2, verse 3, doesn't say that the seventh day ended. There's no, there was evening and the morning. So day number seven never ends. If you go to Hebrews chapter 4 in the New Testament, you get the idea that we're still expected and able and offered to enter into God's rest. So rest is a very big deal for God. So this seventh day never ends. It never closes, and God does that intentionally. It's not like God forgot to mention it or he overlooked it. You know, Moses didn't get it when he was writing it. It's just that God is saying to us, like, he's welcoming us still into this rest, as Jesus said in our call to worship this morning in Matthew 11. And it's also unique, like I said earlier, because he blessed it and declared it holy. So my question then, for those of us that are busy, Those of us that maybe feel overworked, maybe those that feel tired, how are you doing with soul restoring rest? Because people I know that have kids, people that I know that work really difficult jobs, people that I know that are retired, I've talked to so many retired people and they're like, I don't know how I found time to work all these years. Yeah, you know, I can't tell him to retired people. I've heard that from because our time just gets filled up. So no matter where you are in the spectrum, we have to keep an eye on this rest thing and not let ourselves get burned out. So, what does soul restoring Sabbath rest look like? Well, I'll give you a hint, it doesn't have anything to do with a screen. So if you're thinking like, uh, you know, you're just going to be lazy and sit on the couch all afternoon and watch TV, not going to do it. Right? There's enough science and research and study out there to show what a screen does to our brains. That's why they say you can't do screens like an hour before bed, because it's gonna amp your brain up and then you're gonna lay there and try to sleep and your mind's gonna be still going crazy because it's not, like, like it's not relaxed yet, right? And so, uh, and what I'm also not talking about with soul restoring rest is I'm not talking about laziness. I'm not talking about making tomorrow, Kyle pay for today, Kyle's laziness, right? Like putting things off that I should be doing. I'm not talking about that because that's just stress down the road, right? Putting things off is not good. So I'm not talking about laziness. And I'm also not talking about just, um, like I said, like scrolling or mindlessly watching things like those really aren't going to restore your soul. And most of the time we know it. If you lay around all afternoon, just watching TV, you don't feel like, Oh man, I'm glad I did that. Those good that, you know, every now and then that's cool. But like screens don't usually give that to our souls. So here's my question for you. How do you do soul restoring rest? And you're like, I don't know. Thankfully, I've got seven handy tips today for you. I prepared ahead of time. It's going to be amazing. I promise. All right. So seven ideas to restore your soul through Sabbath rest and see how I did seven because there's seven days and he rested. That's good. I planned this out. I thought about it ahead of time. All right. So number one, all right, number one. So let's talk about regular Sabbath rest first. So protecting one day of the week, Sunday, for rest, for worship, restoration, and relationships. So what would it look like for you? Because in Exodus 20, when God talks about the Sabbath, he says, look, I've given you six days to get your stuff done. I want you to take one day where you're not doing work-related activities, right? And so what would it look like for you to order your life in such a way that you tried really hard to get as much as you could done in those six days so that you had a day totally devoted and protected that like rest and worship, restoration and relationships. Like what if you could have that, you know, Uh, as each cell said, you know, what if you could like go over mom and dad's and eat all their food every Sunday, right? Because you had that kind of margin in your life and to be able to do those slower rhythms, I think is super, super healthy for our souls. So that might be like an idea for like a regular Sabbath, like a regular day of rest. And then next though, like I said earlier, disconnect from all technology and digital distractions. Cause this also, here's what I find. I like to go hiking and I like to listen to things when I hike, but I found though, that that can still be very distracting. I'll listen to podcasts or I'll listen to other things, but I like to listen to things that aren't always soul restorative. Like I'll listen to like a leadership podcast or a theological podcast. And then my mind is going into overdrive when I do that. And I, so I can't really get rest when I do that. So it's better for me, I often found, to maybe listen to either scripture or nothing at all. Because then if I'm listening to scripture, my ears are dinging because I'm getting messages and I'm getting emails and social is like, or whatever is, you know. And so I have to like, do not disturb those kind of things. But to say, I'm going to like a, this is like more short-term Sabbath. Like I'm going to have a break of like an hour or two or maybe do like a week-long fast. And anybody, anybody ever done a week-long fast of media? That's tough. That's tough to say. I'm not going to do any tech for a whole week. So like doing that kind of regular rhythm, like little mini Sabbaths. Uh, Next, what you could do is on the other side of this, like I said, get outside. We're talking about Genesis right now and all that God has given us to get outside and actually appreciate it is a big deal because that's when you can find space to like talk to God. Like, Lord, my soul is a wreck right now. Lord, uh, I'm strung out. I'm busy. I'm sick. You know, blah, 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 blah. Whatever you need to do, like it's a great space to just go and talk to God. So how can you restore your soul? Well, go outside and be with him. Like, he gave us all this on purpose, right? Think about the order of the creation story. It all happened first, and then that's when he put people into it, right? Look at this beautiful creation. Now I want you to enjoy it. Like, so let's enjoy it. Let's take time to do it, you know, regularly, even just a little walk. Next, what you can do, spend some quality time with your family and loved ones. So I'm talking about people that fill you up. I'm not talking about, like, I'm going to go find Uncle Charlie, who is an old, cantankerous, miserable person, and I'm going to try to fix that relationship. No, that's not Sabbath rest. That's not kind of connection I'm talking about. Like, do that for sure. Maybe, maybe not, but maybe you need to do some family work like that. But I'm talking about, like, your loved ones, just spending that regular time where there's no distractions, you're just together, people that fill you up, or just people that you love in your life. Um, I talked to two different pastors this week that are guys like that for me. They're encouraging like they're getting to know my story. They fill me up. They like, they really do. They fill my soul up when I'm with them. And I told him that like when we got done meeting and it was cool because this week at the end of the week, I got a text from both of them. And one of them this morning, one of the guys is Matt, he's a pastor, which meant a lot to me that he's going to text me on a Sunday morning. You know what I'm saying? He's busy enough on a Sunday morning. And he said, Hey man, I just want to say, I really appreciate you in my life. And like, you know, you're just, you're so good for my soul. And I was like, exactly, dude, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So here we are just encouraging each other. And it's like having that kind of like people in your life is amazing that will fill your soul up, right? That's like that was a mini, mini Sabbath for me this morning to just to like have that exchange. All right, so again, mini Sabbaths. Next one is giving, uh, giving yourself time to serve somebody else because when you serve somebody else, I do believe, even though this is like doing something. Uh, it's like it's taking the focus off of yourself and saying I just wanna, I wanna focus on somebody else and that that's good for your soul. So it could be a text just like Matt did for me this morning, right? That was him serving me through kindness. He just texted me that and it was just like man. Or you could like write a note to somebody or if you know like somebody hasn't been around a little bit or whatever and they're sick, you could go, well maybe not while they're sick, but maybe after they're better, go and visit them, right? Or you could make something and bring it to them or have your wife make it and then take credit for it and bring it to them, right? That's always an option as well right? Yeah, I just wanted to make this lasagna for you. You know, we just love you guys so much, you know? Yeah. Bernie makes a great lasagna though. I'm telling you, she's got a good one. All right. Um, and then, uh, next. So this one's a little more difficult. Do absolutely nothing. This is hard because this can like veer into laziness like really easily, but giving yourself permission to do absolutely nothing. Like I'm just going to sit on the couch and I'm going to take a nap like, I struggle big time with this one. Of all the things on this list, this is the hardest one for me to do because I always feel guilty about it. But to just like take a nap, read a book, you know, just like do nothing, to have like an hour or two. Uh, I actually did fall asleep last, I think it was Sunday or Saturday, and it was like hardcore sleep. You know when you take a nap and you wake up and you don't even know what day it is, you know? Like it was like that, kind of a rest. And I was like, I came out of it and I felt a little guilty, but I was like, no, clearly I needed that. Look how hard I fell asleep, right? So doing absolutely nothing can be so, so good for your heart and your soul uh, to take every now and then to take those times. And then lastly, here's the thing for today. I would love for us to just reorient our lives around Sabbath rest because our body and soul are designed for it, right? If we take Genesis seriously, we begin to look at Sabbath rest differently because we realize that we are literally designed for rest if God himself, if we're made in God's image and he took rest, and then he says, I want you to take rest because I took rest. It's like, okay, maybe we need rest. Like maybe I need to take this thing seriously. Maybe there's a reason so many people are getting burned out, right? Like burned out. We went through all together. We all went through the trauma of COVID together. And now we're just trying to like, I don't know, right? Get back to a sense of normalcy or goodness or whatever. And it's like, And a lot of us are burned out from that. And then we're just trying to like, kind of do more and more and more and more, right? If you're like, in so many of my feeds on social or news or whatever, it's like how to hustle better, how to grind more, how to get more side hustles, how to do like be more efficient so I can get more stuff done. And efficiency is good. I'm all about more efficiency because then it does save time and it does create margin. But it's like, we are just so much like do, 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 do more. And then just consume more media, consume more media. And it's like, and we're burning out on silliness. And I think that if we reorient our lives, like we actually need this, and like we actually believe God, like I think that can do some serious work in our souls, in our hearts, because we're made for it, right? So those are my seven tips. Uh, those are for you to consider, or to do, or to not to do. Um, but I think that they're good for us, and I see, I see a lot of that in people I respect. They do these things well. All right, and then Genesis 2, verses 4 through 7. So the next section we see, now rest is being, not being talked about. Now we're starting to get into Adam and Eve. What is interesting about this, and just as, as a teachable moment here, because I like to teach Scripture and how to read Scripture, in verse 4, there's this phrase, these are the accounts of, right? Or these are the records of, depending on your translation. In Hebrew, it's the Elah Toledot phrase, and there's 10 of them in the book of Genesis. And if you're reading Genesis, this is a key to understanding Genesis, and we're going to be studying Genesis together for like a year and a half. So there are 10 sections in Genesis. Every time a new section starts, it's going to begin with this phrase. These are the records, or these are the accounts of. And it just lets you know, oh, this is something different. So it's kind of a key to reading Genesis. And verse 4 here starts one of these sections. But it's not the accounts of people. It's the accounts of the heavens and earth concerning their creation, right? So here we are still focusing on God's creation, but this time in Adam and Eve. So it's introducing something else. So here's a confusing verse that people have asked me about in the past, and I've always actually wondered about myself. Verse four, the second part. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. Like people have always been confused like that. What does that mean? At the time the Lord made everything, there was no plant of the field and no shrub of the field. Like, is that going back to Genesis one? Like, is it confusing the timeline? It's not doing that. It's actually, um, linguistically it's looking ahead. So essentially what this verse is saying is like, this is an idyllic time in human history. No shrub of the field had grown and no plant of the field had yet sprouted means the curse had not yet happened. So it's not looking back to Genesis 1. It's looking ahead to Genesis 3. Because in Genesis three seventeen and 18, it says the same phrase. When God is pronouncing the curse on Adam because of what he did, he says, the ground is cursed because of you, and you will eat the plants of the field. The same exact phrase is here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. So this is what's going to happen as a result of your sin. So essentially what God is saying is, this is a perfect time in human history. Because the plan of the field hasn't sprouted yet. It's before the curse. So he's just saying, this has all happened before things hit, get really sideways. This is my plan for humanity. So it's important to understand that because God's saying, this is what it's supposed to be like, right? This is the ideal. This is the plan. So then he goes on in verse seven. He says, then the Lord God formed the man, Adam, Hebrew, out of the dust of the ground, Adama. So we have this connection between us and the dirt, right? And the earth. And breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. People are like, oh, how did that actually happen? How did that all work? I don't know. Like, this is what I'm talking about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't know, right? Let's not worry so much about that. What, what do we see? What is God saying about himself? He breathed life. God's the only one that can do that. Right when Jesus shows up on the scene, he starts echoing all these like God-like statements. He's the one that will breathe life. He's the one that can create new creation. Right, he's the one that does that in us eternally. He's the one that can do that in this life. He can restore brokenness. He can do like he can do all these things because he's the one that breathes life. Like he is the life giver. That's who we're talking about in the book of Genesis. Because in the next section, now this is important. Like this whole breathing life, this becomes like this kind of bleeds down into the rest of the sections of Genesis because we have some characters that are introduced that are actually not people, right? In a good story, you're going to have characters that sometimes are places or sometimes they're things. And in Genesis uh, 2, verses 8 and following, you have the introduction of the garden. And the first time the garden is introduced, it's actually the garden in Eden, not the garden of Eden. The second time it's mentioned, it's the garden of Eden. So Eden seems to be a place And the garden is actually in Eden. So there's this kind of, again, this idyllic era, area. And then Eden, uh, or the garden is in the center of that somewhere. So again, it's like the perfection of perfection is what God's trying to paint a picture here of. And it's just like this beautiful thing that he's trying to invite us into. Because remember, this is a blown up version of the creation of human beings. And he's trying to show us how beautiful this is. Also, not only the garden, because that's like a character in and of itself. But you also have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Now, in my podcast this week, I'm going to get a little bit more into the, those two trees because they are very fascinating because those two trees, uh, those weigh big on the, the Bible as well. So I'm going to dig a little bit deeper midweek on those, uh, not so much this morning. But in this section here coming up, we're in 15 and following, after we have all these things introduced, now Adam is going to have to like reckon with what is going on with this tree this option? What does it mean for his life? And this, I think, is where it gets real for us. So the Lord God commands the man, you're free to eat of any tree in the garden. And how often is this true? Like if you've had little kids, you're like, guys, you can have this, but don't touch this. Immediately the kids are like, oh, I want to touch that so bad. Like all I want to do is touch that, right? It's like, that's how we are. That's such human nature. And he says, look, you can do any of this stuff, but don't eat from this one tree. And he tells Adam alone, uh, he tells Adam alone. So this, I think, why the the curse is harder on him. I think this is why the New Testament holds Adam more accountable. Romans chapter five said, sin came into the world through Adam because God didn't tell Eve this, that we have it recorded at least. He told Adam this, right? And so he says, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, of course, Adam doesn't really know what that means, but God is saying something about himself. He's saying that only he knows what is right and wrong. Now, this is the paradox that we live in. And I want you to think about this morning, we're going to talk about sex, sexuality, and marriage. Pride month is coming up in like a week or not even, right? And so there's going to be a lot of fighting and there's going to be a lot of hatred and vitriol and poison being spewed all over our country during this month. And it already has been with some of the stuff that's happened with the trans stuff leading up to it. And so there's going to be a lot of uh, ugly things, I think, that happen. But Uh, What I want us to think about as we get into this story of how he created us and his design for sex and marriage is that we all struggle with this. This is a very human issue. I am going to tell you what is good and you're just going to have to trust that I know what I'm talking about as your creator. Every single one of us are going to have to wrestle with that. And so God alone knows that. That's the paradox. That's the struggle, the tension that humans have always lived in. And it's this right here. We're going to either trust God or decide for ourselves. Right, and this is where it gets tricky. We live and have always lived at a time, really, when people want to decide for themselves what is right and wrong. And that can go anywhere from sexuality or just like general moral principles or the value of human life or, 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 and on and on and on. So let me give you a couple of examples. If we have to decide for ourselves, modern man loves that idea that I get to decide for myself but logically it gets tricky when you start to try to work that out in any area of life because ultimately who gets to decide then? If there's no line in the sand, no creator saying this is what's right and this is what's wrong, who then is right? Whoever's loudest, that's often what happens. Is it the majority, right? Because, well, that's not fair because what about the minority of people? And it's like, well, then who gets to decide? A fascinating story, a couple of them from history. Um, I remember reading years ago about uh, American, or no, Spanish missionaries that uh, (laughs) that were going into the Pacific, and they were arriving in these islands, and English missionaries as well, but European missionaries, and they were going over, and they were arriving in these Pacific islands, and they were like meeting these people that had all these weird practices, like eating each other, right? And they were like, Oh, cannibalism. This is this is strange. So they bump into these people and they're like, "Hey, no, you should not be eating each other because, you know, we're actually made in the image of God and they're trying to present the gospel to these people and they're like, who are you to tell us we can't eat each other? Like, well, who are you coming in here trying to dictate to us what we can do?" And they're like, "No, no, no, like this is awkward. You shouldn't be eating one another, right?" And so they're like, they're trying to, to press into this with the word of God with, you know, them personally having faith that they're created in the image of God. And these people thought it was totally ridiculous. So the gospel spreads, and eventually some of these villages are like, oh, yeah, we do need to do this differently. Another interesting story from the missionaries that were going into some of these Pacific, I think Tahitian islands, maybe, but I can't remember. It's been too many years. But they go in, and there's this one particular group of people that have a very troubling um, end-of-life ceremony. So when a man would reach a certain age to prevent him from becoming um, a burden on the, the society or getting to the point where he could no longer do what he wanted to do, his son would straddle him on when he's laying on his back and he would just strangle him to death as he looked at him. It's like, and so here are these missionaries coming and it's like, and that's how you would end your life as a man. Your son would strangle to death. And it was like, you know, the, they had like, you know, things were passed from father to son and all this like whole thing. But if you show up and you say, hey, that's not cool. You can, you, there's a better way forward. We should be honoring these men, not murdering them. But it's like, well, who are you to decide? And so it's, it, you know, and that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Clearly, it goes all the way back to the beginning of time, this struggle of, well, who gets to decide? And so from a perspective of a biblical perspective, like I'm going to trust God enough as my designer and creator that he's, he's in charge that he knows best. And this includes a lot of the things that we're going to hit on this morning. But what is God saying? He is the one that can define right and wrong in this passage. And then everything that's about to happen, this is important to know this for. So the next section, 18 through 25, is beautiful. Uh, It's about the creation of Eve. It's about this wonderful thing called woman that gets brought to Adam. And it's like, it it's changes everything for Adam. And you can see in the way, in the language that he uses, this changes everything for him. And these verses here that we're about to read are absolutely formational for the rest of the Bible's understanding on sex, sexuality, and marriage. These verses that we're about to read are that big. And they're ones that Jesus himself quotes to talk about marriage. So here's the tension that Adam feels, and I think that God lets him feel. So the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him helper is the hebrew word Ezer, and that is a word that's used a lot of times in the old testament to refer to god so just to be clear this is not a subservient helper this is not a slave for adam this is somebody that's meant to be his equal because what you're about to see is adam's going to name all these animals like kind of showing the dominion god has given him over the animal kingdom and he's able to do that but he's not going to find a helper there Right That corresponds to him. He's not going to look to God and find a helper that corresponds to him, because he's not the opposite of God, right? He's not going to fit like a puzzle piece with God. So he finds no helper that is going to correspond to him, or in Hebrew, be his opposite, right? There's, a, there's a, like a match there in what he needs and he doesn't yet have. And I think God lets him feel that tension, because in verse 20, It ends by repeating verse 18. It says, but for the man, after naming all these animals, no helper, no azer was found corresponding to him. It's like God let him feel that tension before he brings Eve on the scene. He wanted him to know he needed what he was about to give him. So verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of the ribs and in Hebrew, it's just side. It's not actually ribs. It's just side. And he closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman. He brought her to the man. So this is, I don't know. People are like, was it actually this? Was it actually that? I'm like, again, I don't know. God just spoke the universe into existence. Let's not worry so much about the rib. But in that culture, in Hebrew, and, they, and the rest of the Bible, and the rest of the Old Testament, when they use this word, it's never rib. It's only rib in Genesis. Every other time, it's like an architectural term. And it's, usually, it's about the side. And it's usually about the side of, like, a tabernacle or the temple, a sacred and holy place. So there is something being communicated about Eve coming out of his side to be his equal and also to be something sacred. There's, like, there's a lot of theological meaning tied up in that the choice of using this this specific word. And so that says something about woman. And something I want us to, two things I want us to see out of this is not just like, well, how did that happen? What are the details? But there's two things that are sexed bodies are important. Being male and being female are important because they are designed that way to fit together in a complementary or opposing way, right? They do fit together. There's design and intent there. And there's goodness in that. And so when I talk with somebody that's struggling with their identity and their gender, I try to bring them to that. Like there's actually a purpose in your body in the way that you've been made. And I know you're feeling discontinuity there, but there's actually goodness there. And, right? and so that's a much different way to approach that than you know, just trying to slam them in the face with these verses, but to say that there's intent and that it's good. And another thing for the ladies I want us to hear, notice that nothing is mentioned of her appearance. Nothing is mentioned of the fact that she will one day bear children. Like none of that is part of her worth as presented in here. She is presented as a woman and she's brought to the man on equal standing because, solely because she is a woman. Like that, there's value in just being a woman. You don't need to earn it. And I think that's, a lot of women need to hear that, and I think a lot of men need to understand it, right? Because a lot of men don't treat women like they have value just because they're a woman. They don't need to bring anything else to the table. They have intrinsic value, and when he brings her to Adam, it's just her. Now she's naked, which is a bonus for Adam, but she's just brought, right? That ends up working out well. But notice in the text, nothing is mentioned of that. He just brings her to the man, right? And so, guys, we need to remember that when we're in places that are going to be an opportunity for us to see women as anything less than this, how we talk about them, what we're watching, what we're thinking, right? Like pornography and things like that. We need to remember that there's something beautiful about women that should not be taken advantage of and not being abused, right? That's a big message that's lost in our culture, especially. Ladies, you're, you're a creation of the king. Don't ever forget it. And then verse 23, then the man said, And this is where he gets excited. This one, at last, right, finally. I've I've named all the furry creatures and the watery creatures and these birds. And yeah, God, I appreciate it. They're cute. But this one, this one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And this one, Adam is going to name himself and her. This one called woman, or in Hebrew, Isa, for she was taken from man, Isa. So Adam recognizes immediately that there is this intimate bond that exists between he and Eve. She doesn't even have a name yet, but he says, look, she's woman, I'm man, because we're from, like, like there's this connection, like she is from me, and like we're connected, right? So even the name in Hebrew. So this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds to his wife, and they become one flesh. When Jesus is describing marriage, he quotes this verse exactly, when a man and is going to leave his father and mother, and Adam doesn't even have one at this point, but this is the model, and bonds with his wife, they become one flesh. And if you don't speak Hebrew, let me help you out. They're having sex. That's what's going on in this scene. They're two becoming one flesh. And it's important to understand sex is a a gift from God, something healthy that we should be talking about. We've had people before in our past, in our church, that don't want us to talk about sex because it's awkward, and it's like impolite, and it's like, yeah, I don't care because we need to talk about these things, right? It's in scripture, and there's a reason I think there's so much unhealthy thinking around sex is because we don't talk about it right. We create, and especially in Christian culture, sex is almost seen as this dirty thing that you can't talk about, you can't touch, you can't look at it until all of a sudden you get married. And now it's like, oh, it's not a dirty thing anymore. Now enjoy it. It's like, well, you've been telling me it's a bad thing for a long time. You know, that's the message I've been getting. And as a youth pastor, it breaks my heart, but I know in some ways, not a lot, but I know in some ways I've taught in that way that I've almost created this vibe that it can be a bad thing. That it's like, keep your hands off until you're married rather than like talking about the beauty of it. Now, Brittany and I got that pretty quick and we changed how we taught about this stuff pretty early on. But to know that this is a beautiful gift is important. And verse 25 both a man and his wife, they're naked and they felt no shame. So that's showing the peace between them, the perfect spiritual and physical unity, but it's also sadly foreshadowing what's about to happen in the next chapter because they are about to have shame. So this right here, uh, these 23 through 25, this gives us the the proper context for sex. That's what's happening here. Within marriage between a man and a woman, like that's where God's design and purpose is for this stuff. And so for us, again, if we're going to take this stuff seriously and understand that is really, really important because These two people bonded in this way and the way God intended them to do. So there's a couple things I want you to think kind of across the spectrum of how this plays out negatively in our lives. So you have, in some cases, people will play marriage, right? They'll play marriage, i.e. they'll get together, they'll start having sex, they'll move in together, they'll maybe have some kids, and eventually they'll maybe get married, right? That's pretty much how people think um, today. And that is really, really dangerous and really, really unhealthy and can be very, very damaging because what happens if those people break up? Well, they've been playing marriage and when they break up, they're gonna play divorce. And that is crazy painful, especially if there's kids involved, especially like, you know, there are finances. So you're gonna play marriage. So when you break up, it's not just a breakup, right? It's a a divorce that you're like acting out and it's really, really painful. And so for us to have a really healthy understanding of this is, is just wildly important. Because Matthew 19, again, Jesus quotes this passage all these verses here. And he says, this is the intent. This is the design. This is the purpose of marriage. So that you're going to separate from your family and you're going to unite with this other person. In Ephesians 5, to make it more important, make the weight of marriage that much more important, is that Paul says this is not only a reflection of like man and woman, but it's a reflection of Jesus and his church. So there's deep theological meaning. And Paul says, and that's the mystery. It's a mystery there than Ephesians 5, that this is a picture of Jesus and his church. And so to, to have that kind of weight and kind of understanding allows, I think, people, especially Christians, to better appreciate what this is. Because in Christianity in America, the divorce rate is still one in, f- one in two, right? It's 50%, just like it is outside of Christianity in America. And so I think even as Christians, we need to better understand this. And this is not about shame. This is not about saying, oh, if you've had divorce, if you've had sexual sin in your life, that you need to be shamed and feel bad. This is just about a different way forward. This is about understanding what God's picture for this is for us. Again, Jesus isn't going to just leave us in shame. He's going to say, no, 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 I want to redeem your brokenness from your past. Or maybe you're hurt from the past. I want you to see if you get married again, how do you do that correctly? If you're going to be in a position of hurt from your past and you're cynical about marriage, like how can you move forward with a healthier view of what it should be? If one day maybe you do get married again, what is it supposed to be like? Equal. It's a partnership. It's a counterpart, right? It's something that's supposed to be this beautiful and powerful thing. That's what God is teaching us. That's the gift that he's given us. So a couple thoughts on, on sex and marriage. So this, like I said, you gotta, in a couple weeks, you've got pride coming up. And all of a sudden, everything, everybody's gonna be using these verses to talk about that. But we need to understand the beauty of sex, first and foremost, the beauty and purpose of marriage, first and foremost, to, to even begin to have these kind of conversations. Because sex is not something that they figured out while God had his back turned, right? It wasn't like they were like there doing their thing in the garden and God was like, all right, you guys just hang out, stay out of trouble, and don't, you know what I'm saying, don't. And then he walks away and then they do while he's gone. This is something that he invented. It was a gift he gave them to bond them together in marriage. And so for us to start from that premise and say, yeah, this is not some dirty, bad thing that we can't talk about or think about. This is something that we need to engage like our minds and our souls with. And then... With, like, with this, there's a misunderstanding, I think, even in marriage. I've talked to a lot of women. I've talked to other people in ministry. And I, I have definitely seen over my years and being in ministry now, more than a decade, of, of how often there's a complete misunderstanding of sex and marriage within Christian marriages, right? I've talked to women and men that there's borderline marital rape happening in their marriage. Because it's like, well, I just expect to be able to have sex with you because I'm your husband. And it's like, well, you're a jerk. You've done no no work whatsoever to warm your wife up to any idea of sex. It's just you think you deserve it selfishly, or you're watching porn, or you're having other some kind of other like mental affairs. And your wife finds out, she knows about it. She's broken because of your sin, but you still expect her to have sex and be intimate with you. And I know a lot of guys that struggle with that. But personally, that I've talked to, they just don't quite understand well, why are you so upset about this. I, I apologize. It's like, because you rip my guts out. That's why, because now I'm insecure because I can't compare to the internet, right? And so sex and marriage, there's a misunderstanding even within that. And so for us to say, I'm gonna take this seriously, that guys shouldn't just see this as a one-sided thing, but honey, how can I meet your sexual needs, right? And this is awkward, and I hope it is because we need to hear these things. We need to understand this is what God is saying in this book for us. So married guys, we need to treat are wives like an equal partner. Ladies should see see themselves as an equal partner in the marriages that they're in. And a lot of times, for some reason, oddly, it's always been, I've never been able to explain it. It's almost like, especially in Christian marriages, this is abused that there's like this idea that you are my slave and my servant in marriages. And like, I don't know how such unhealthy views get started in the church when we clearly see that this is an equal partnership, Right. And that it should be expected to be that way from both sides. So, what is what is marriage, right? What is what is this tricky thing we have? Marriage is a lifelong commitment. That's what it's intended to be—an equal partnership between a man and a woman, and that's where sex happens, right? Yes, it is a very narrowly defined definition. I understand that homosexuality. Yes, I do believe is a sin, and I don't believe homosexual marriage is a marriage. It's a it's a unity for sure, but. Is it a marriage by definition? Uh, this is an iPad by definition, right? So I'm not like trying to be a jerk to anybody. I'm just saying, as defined, marriage is between a man and a woman. Just as this by definition, this is an iPad. However, we need to understand that, that this is not a, a gay or not gay issue. At the heart of it, this is a, an issue about what God has given us and what he intends. Because uh, I've asked the other two services today, who ruined marriage? Was it, was it gay people that came along and you guys are destroying the institution of marriage? No, heterosexual has been doing that for like a million years, right? We've been messing up marriage, doing it wrong, abusing our spouses, right? You have the marriage, the no-fault marriage happening in 1969. You had the sexual revolution in the late sixties. You had like, we have been doing a really good job all in our own. We don't need to be pointing fingers at the homosexual community and gay queer community and being like, you guys are destroying the institution maybe it's been like heterosexuals for a long time doing that. And maybe we need to take a good look at ourselves, how we view marriage, how we approach this stuff, how we engage with sex. Like this is really like down to earth for us, kind of what is God saying about himself, his plan for us kind of stuff. And if this doesn't inform you, then you are going to have unhealthy views about sex. You're going to have unhealthy views, uh, unbiblical, ungodly, evil, satanic views about marriage and sex. Like that's where it's going to go if we don't understand this. So I want you to think, I want you to think about these three things right here, or four, are you entangled but not committed, right? And what does that look like in your life if you are? Are you unfaithful, abusive, are you a neglectful spouse, guy or girl? Are you treating sex like it's just a tool for your own selfish desire? That was a lesson I remember hearing from a a speaker years ago. And he said, you know, when guys treat this like this, it's not just some harmless thing. It's like you're turning sex from this beautiful thing to unite you to your wife to just some selfish little thing that you get to do for a few minutes. Like, and that's all it is. And I was like, that's like, you know, and you're just taking away so much and you're just making it cheap. I said, that's a really interesting way to put that. Or are you cynical about marriage? Have you been wounded? Are you carrying scars, right? Can you see this as the better path forward? And then, um, like, and then how does that look in your life? Because like I said, there's crossroads for all of us. There's what I want to do. There's what I think is best. There's what feels good. And then there's the trust to say, well, what Jesus says is different. And it might be the same sometimes. And hopefully the more you grow in Christ, the more it's going to be the same. But we're all going to have this crossroads with this kind of stuff with sin and sexual sin. And we're going to all need to decide, am I going to choose just what I want to do or what I was given by my parents or my dad or other guys in my life? Or am I going to choose something different? Ladies, am I going to choose like the abuse and the unhealthy relationships I've witnessed and seen and been a part of? Or am I going to say, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put up with that because I know what God created me to be. I'm a creation of the King, baby. Like I know my worth and I'm going to demand it from every man that ever comes into my life. I tell it to Asher all the time man, like, Asher's going to have such a high bar. I'm like, you never, ever settle, honey. I'm like, man, you make sure men respect you, you know? And, like, that's, like, I want her to know she's a daughter of the king, period, right? And she's got worth because of that. So to close, again, about the rest and the sex. I, want, I would love for us to reorient our lives around Sabbath rest because our bodies and souls are designed for it. So maybe some of us need to hear that. And then the second one is that sex and marriage are beautifully powerful gifts from God. And if we would all honor that, man, we would see a different road forward. We would see something powerful and we would have something so much better to offer the world than just hate fueled scripture passages that we throw at people. We would have something so much more beautiful, so much like more hope and and inspiring like that, these kind of things. This is what I think God gave us these accounts for in Genesis so that we could see the beauty of how we're made and designed. And there's something so much better to this than just temporary pleasure or what I want, Right? And that applies to all of us, not just gay and trans, but it applies to every single one of us. Like we got to own this stuff. So let me pray. God, I pray that uh, would you help us to, to, to really, really live this stuff out, Lord, whether we're single, whether we're divorced, whether we're married. God, wherever we are in the spectrum of relationship, God, would you help us to see the beauty of this stuff and what you gave us. And it says, I belong to a loving God who bestows on us value and meaning and purpose. And he has a design that's good. Our bodies are good, Jesus. And I just pray that, Lord, we would see the truth in that. God, would you help us all? This, this is all such hard stuff, and it's going to be even harder next month. And so I just pray, God, you would help us to carry grace and truth forward as we think about these things. Help us to even be hard on ourselves if we need to be. Help us to be, have a clear view of ourselves if we need to be, Lord. Would you do the work that only you can do, Jesus? That's what I'm asking for. For this group here, those watching, uh, God, would you show up and be our king? And I pray that in your name, Jesus Christ. And his church said, amen. We love you guys. It's great seeing you and worshiping with you today. Have a great weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quavogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.